Someone once asked me, what would happen if you and your church and everyone who attended your church was magically transported to Bermuda? Who in the community you're presently located in would miss you? And that, the answer to that question, the, the, the people who would miss us being here is the shape of our compassion. It's the footprint of our compassion. So last Sunday, I asked you to take a few moments and to write out the things that you do for others, the ministries you do for others, where you volunteer, what you do. Don't sign it, but stick it in the box in the back so that I can have a, a picture of the shape of our compassion or the, the footprint of our compassion. I, I really want to see I want to understand what effect this church has outside of our walls. So if you would do that, even if it's something you only do once a year, if you would write it on a piece of paper and stuff it in those boxes back there so that I could get a good picture. I really want a good picture of that. I put scrap paper and pens on the table in the lobby. So if you want to do that afterwards, you can. If you want to write some things on a card that's in the pew and put it in there, I'm good with that, but I'm, I'm interested in that. We are in the middle of a collection of parables. These parables are found in Matthew 24 to Matthew 25. The setting of these parables places them right after Jesus talks about the end of the age, or in other words, the return of Jesus Christ to rule as king over the earth. Jesus, as we know, lived on the earth, the incarnation of the Son of God. God's son always existed, but at one point in time, he took on flesh and became the God-man, Jesus the Christ. We will talk about that a lot more in Advent coming up. When Jesus lived on earth, he taught us by his example how we are supposed to live. Then he suffered and died to reconcile us to God. After that, the father raised him from the dead and he appeared to his disciples and others. He is the prototype, the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. What we see in the body of Jesus after he is raised from the dead is our promises of what we will also have when we are raised from the dead. Before he returned to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, he told his disciples that they were to be his witnesses from their immediate neighborhood to the utmost reaches of the world. And then he ascended. And as he ascended into heaven, the angel said to his disciples, Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but three, these three parables in this final collection of parables in Matthew's gospel are addressing what we are supposed to be doing while we wait for his return. Last Sunday, we talked about the responsibility of leaders in the interim. Leaders in the church exist to resource the workers. You can hear the echo of this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter. 11 and 12, some he gave to be teachers and prophets to equip the saints for works of service. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. But it's also true that the workers have to feed themselves as they mature, 
which means eating spiritual food more than once a week. Together, leaders and workers, we do the work Christ calls us to do week after week, diligently fulfilling our call to live as daughters and sons of the king. If the first parable is directed to the leaders of the church, the second is directed to the rank and file members and workers in the church. If the first parable is directed towards the shepherds, the second is directed towards the sheep. Leaders are leaders by virtue of calling and confirmation. God calls some to specific duties and congregations affirm this call and install leaders in various ways. But leaders, as we remember, are servants in the same way that every other person in the kingdom of God is a servant. So today when we talk about the rank and file members of the kingdom, leaders are included in the conversation because, well, they're rank and file members of the kingdom too. This is Matthew 25, beginning in verse one, and I would invite you as you're able to stand for the reading of the gospel. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. The basic assumption contained in this story is that Jesus, the bridegroom, is on his way. Today, the word bridegroom has been shortened to groom. And so for the rest of the sermon, I'm gonna use the word groom and you'll understand it refers to bridegroom in the story. You have heard the apostle Paul talk about the church as the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and they are destined to be together forever. Remember, this is just a metaphor, an attempt to explain the love of God for his church and the longevity of the relationships that will exist between groom and bride. This isn't the only metaphor that Paul uses. If you've read scripture, you can think of other metaphors that are used to describe the kingdom in different terms. Paul talks about the church also as the body of Christ. In Colossians 1.18, we are told that Christ is the head of the body, that is, the church. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul describes the church 
as the building God is constructing. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation, Jesus is the cornerstone, and we are all being built into a spiritual house. In him, the whole building is joined together, Paul writes, and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In 1 Peter 2, Peter combines the metaphor of a spiritual building with that of the priesthood. You also, he says, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later in 1 Peter, Peter calls the church the flock of God and encourages the elders to shepherd the flock until the chief shepherd, Jesus, arrives. John, in John 15, describes the church as a great plant. The central vine is Jesus Christ, and we are the branches. This metaphor serves the purpose of reminding the branches, that's all of us, to stay connected to the vine, to abide in Christ. Because if we allow ourselves to be cut off, or separated from the vine, we will absolutely wither and die. Our life is in Christ. Every one of these images, all of these different images of the church and of the kingdom have significant things to tell us, and there are a couple that they all carry together. The first is, there is an essential unity implied in every picture of the kingdom of God. A body has many parts, but only one entity. A marriage, the two become one. A structure, lots of different building materials, only one building. A flock, maybe a staff of shepherds, keeping the flock together for the benefit of the master. Unity is central to the kingdom of God. This is one reason why it is very unwise to think that we can function as Christians apart from the church. Part of what makes us Christian is our unity with the body of Christ, his church. It is likely that if you are estranged from the church, you are estranged from him. There's no substitute for the regular meeting together of the church of Jesus Christ. The second thing that all of these metaphors have in common is this. Jesus is in charge. Life comes through Jesus to the rest of the branch, the body, the building. The church cannot function unless Jesus is its head. But remember, even though these metaphors all carry similarities, this particular one we're looking at today is about how we exist, how we wait for the coming of the king. In our story, the groom is delayed. We understand immediately what is implied. Jesus hasn't returned yet, even though the promise of his return still stands. In our story, a wedding banquet has been prepared and some of the guests are waiting outside to be invited in. The parable recalls the words of Revelation 9, 19.9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Now, to understand the implications of this story, you have to know a little something about the wedding customs of folks in this part of the world 2,000 years ago, right? They don't know about our wedding customs, and most of us don't know about theirs, but this is how things went back then. 
at some point, long before a wedding happens, an engagement is formally announced. From the moment the engagement is announced, the couple is bound together legally. It is necessary for the couple to be bound legally because after the engagement comes the time of preparation. A home for the new couple must first be established. It may be that an entirely new home is being built or a room was often added to the father of the groom's home and this was the groom's responsibility. Couple isn't together yet, but there were things to be done in preparation. There were also clothes to be made, and the bride needed to ready herself for the time her husband came to collect her. She was busy preparing to furnish the house that the groom was busy building. That's what we did during engagement. We've got to get a house ready, we've got to get clothes and towels and sheets and whatever we're using. We've got to have all those things ready so we're ready to join together when the time of the wedding comes. When the house is finished, When all the clothes are ready, the groom returns to collect his bride, which at that point required the permission of the father. Once secured, it was time to tie the knot under a canopy, which represented the new home the couple was creating together, and then off to the feast. When I think about that tradition, it reminds me of what Jesus says in John 14, right? Um... Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are plenty of extra rooms. And if I wasn't doing that, I would have told you so. But I'm doing this so that where I go, I'll come and get you and you can go with me. It's this parallel picture of Jesus collecting his bride and taking her to the place that he has prepared for her to be. That's what's behind this picture. It would have been insulting to the groom to have prepared the house and then returned to collect the bride only to discover that the bride had been lazy and not completed the wedding clothes and the other items that would be be required for the new home. In our story, the 10 virgins represent all Christians who are waiting to be collected by the groom, which is Jesus. Some of the bridesmaids have prepared for the return of the groom, others have not. Those who are prepared enter the feast with the groom. Those who are not prepared and not present in our story wind up on the other side of the door and are not admitted to the feast. And for them, all hope is lost. When Matthew talks about what it means to be prepared and to be ready, he has at least these things in mind. He has in mind continuing acts of compassion, the abstinence from bad behavior, love for enemies as well as friends and neighbors, the forgiveness of others, unhesitating faith and love for God, All those things that we were invited to embrace back in Matthew 5 and 6 in the Sermon of the Mount, all of those things are in Matthew's head. This is how we wait for the coming king. And we need to remember that preparation is both being 
and doing. This isn't a sermon about just doing good works alone. It's a sermon about because of our faith in Christ and the new life he gives us, out of gratitude, we respond to his grace by fulfilling his call to serve others and to speak of the mission of Christ. This is honestly while I'm asking you, this is why I'm asking you to tell me the shape of your compassionate works. I mean, the, the exercise I'm asking you to complete is anonymous. I'm not asking you to sign your name when you tell me what you do for others when you're out of my sight. I want to see if we, as a church, are practicing readiness. And if I can't see it, I don't know it. And if I don't know it, how on earth can I lead you properly? Let me say it this way. If I don't see a significant demonstration in writing of the shape of our expressed compassion as a congregation, you should expect a lot more sermons in that direction. It's clear to me that good works are evidence of healthy and strong faith. Love for God is expressed in actions on behalf of those in need. And if there are no or very few actions for those in need, then it may be that our love for God has grown cold and that we are in danger of being left outside in the cold on the day that Jesus returns. And it's my job, to the best of my ability, to make sure you are ready. I mean, you remember the words of Revelation 3? It hasn't been that long since I've preached on that passage. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, verse 9 says. So be earnest and repent. I guess here is where I am wrestling personally. I'm, I'm asking myself, why is it that we Americans always seem to celebrate holidays by finding ways to indulge ourselves? I mean, if we are embarking on a holiday that's supposed to surround giving thanks, it would seem that our first priority ought to be figuring out what deed of compassion we might do to honor God by caring for someone other than ourselves, someone outside our own family. But for many folks, all eyes are on the Thanksgiving turkey, the cranberry sauce, and the oyster stuffing. You know, the internet is a great thing, and, and I've discovered one way to make your Thanksgiving feast taste astronomically better. 
I've discovered this. You should, if you like have a notepad or something, you probably should write down this recipe because if you add this to the turkey, it promises to be better. Let me say this first. I come from a family of runners. Before the big race, they eat pasta and carbs to load up on energy. Then they have special plans for the recovery meal after all their energy has been expended in the race. Those recovery meals taste so good to the person who is just finishing the race because they're so hungry and so badly in need of the calories. I don't know if you've experienced this, but if you're out working in the yard on a hot summer day, boy, nothing tastes better than a glass of cold water. Other times, eh, it's just water. Give me something else. Give me something with flavor. But on a hot day, when you're parched, there's nothing better. I believe that our Thanksgiving meal would taste so much better if by the time we ate it, we were physically weary from the works of compassion we had done in the week leading up to the dinner. If we were maybe giving away some of our abundance to others who needed it, and we had worn ourselves out in the service of the people Jesus loves. That kind of a Thanksgiving meal would be so delicious. I'm not saying don't have a big meal. I'm saying season your turkey with compassion. What might that look like for you this year. Aaron's gonna come at this time and I'm gonna invite you to sing a song with me in closing. And it's, it's not a song we know real well. It's in the hymnal, it's entitled, Come All Christians Be Committed. The words will be up there. But if you wanna look it up later and spend a little more time with the words, you can find it in the hymnal. And while we sing this song, I would ask you to invite the Spirit to direct your feet in terms of compassion. How is it the Spirit is calling you to make a difference in the lives of others? What relationships do you have that call for compassion? How are you caring for those who are around you in need? Remember, our acts of compassion are linked to our gratitude for God for all that he's done for us. It's that love for God that issues forth in loving those around us. We express our love for God by the way we care for others. This is a season of gratitude. We need to express our love for God in large ways. Would you stand with me while we sing? Come all Christians, be committed to the service of the Lord. Make your lives for Him more fitted, tune your hearts with one accord. Come into His courts with gladness, each His sacred vows renew. 
turn away from sin and sadness, be transformed with life anew. Of your time and talents give him, they are gifts from God above. To be used by Christians freely, to proclaim his wondrous love. Come again to serve the Savior, tithes and offerings with you bring. In your work with him find favor and with joy his praises sing. God's command to love each other is required of everyone. Showing mercy to each other mirrors his redeeming son. In compassion he has given of his love that is divine. On the cross sins were forgiven, joy and peace are fully thine. Come in praise and adoration, all who on Christ's name believe. Worship Him with consecration, grace and love will you receive. For His grace give Him the glory, for the Spirit and the Word. And repeat the Gospel story, till the world His name has heard. It seems to me I often run into folks who in the church say, our society and our world are in a mess. Lord Jesus, please come quickly. And it is my prayer that you would replace that prayer with this. Lord Jesus, I haven't done enough for you yet. Please give me more time before you come. The scripture tells us his patience is because he wants everyone to know him. And so we must do our job of exalting Christ and living as ambassadors of the kingdom so they can return. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. But give us time to be ready to have lamps with oil, to have done the deeds the Spirit calls us to do and to live in complete obedience to him in the meantime. Let's increase the shape of our compassion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are the sheep of your pasture. Guide us, discipline us, lead us, show us your ways. Make us sensitive to the needs of those who are around us. Help us, Lord Jesus, that we might please you 
by the investments we make in your kingdom. We pray this in your name, gracious Lord. And now may the glory of God be reflected in the deeds that you do out of gratitude for the work of Christ in your life. And may all that we do bring him glory. Amen. Go in peace.